Well, we're in this series. Nathan asked me to do the fourth. I don't know if there are more than four. I don't know if I'm the last one, but he spoke the last three weeks on isolation and then surrender and then service. These are different qualities that we see in the life of Jesus. And he asked me to speak on separation. So I've been, been enjoying doing some studies about what does it mean that Jesus, what did he separate himself from? And he certainly did that. He set himself apart. Another word for separation, he set himself apart. He separated himself from everything that distracted him from the mission that God appointed him to. Anything that distracted or diminished him, he separated himself from that and stayed razor focused on his mission. But there's something that happened before Jesus separated himself, and that was that God first set him apart. This, this, this idea of separation and being set apart actually originated with God himself, and you can apply this to your own life. You can say, I make choices to separate myself from things that distract me or pull me down, but in, in truth, you're responding to something that God's already done in your heart. He sets you aside, he sets you apart. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, this, these words in the scriptures says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. I always read this, you know, my first question mark being a task-oriented person, like, he hasn't even done anything yet. <laughs> and God's already pleased with him. <laughs> What's that about? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's a self-evident answer. I mean, you know, we don't have to perform to get God's pleasure. He already has pleasure in us. His pleasure in Jesus Christ was this sacred plan that he had from the foundations of the earth, the world, that he set in motion, all of human history is leading up to this moment when his plan was now being unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was 30 years old. There was prep that happened for three decades from his miraculous birth, which we'll talk about in a moment. And God was now unfolding this you know John the Baptist was there baptized Jesus and John's message was repent for the kingdom of God is near but Jesus came and said the kingdom of God is here you know so there was this idea of God's great delight in bringing salvation to the whole world finally after thousands of years of it being in waiting as it were all the way back to Adam and Eve, things that were said after the fall by God to them, finally was being fulfilled. This was it. The kingdom of God was arriving. One of the things that I think is really helpful to us under understanding the idea of being separated, being set apart, is the biblical word holy. That word hagios in the Greek, it actually means to be consecrated. It's, it's something sacred, pure, blameless, something filled with awe. I always think awe is a, a strange word. You know, is it awful or awesome? <laughs> we don't use the word awful to mean something good. You know, it's awful. How do you like that food? It's awful. 
you know, but all filled with all. We say awesome when we think of that. The word holy is translated both the word the word hagios is translated in the Greek New Testament either the word holy or actually the word saint. Almost every occasion when you see the word saint in the scriptures is actually the same word, hagios. Now through history, the church has recognized different people as saints. You know, we, we see that in church tradition at least. There's a, there's a biblical idea that's a little different than some of the church traditions we see, but it's usually a, a recognition of some person or a life of obedience or service to the purpose of God. But I think it's really important to remember that the idea of being holy or set apart or sainthood is not something we earn. It's something that's given to us and we respond to God's work in our lives by following him, obeying him, doing what delights him. God did something in our hearts and we come to live that out from what happened in our hearts. And so in that sense, being set apart. Paul regularly, just deviating a little here from the life of Jesus, we'll get back to him in a minute, but Paul regularly in his letters writes to the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Colossae, to the saints in Corinth. He, he just writes it. If he were writing a letter to us this morning, he would write to the saints on Pensacola Beach. We're not saints because we're worthy to be them. We're saints because God set us apart and made us holy by his grace and by his work and by what happened at Calvary. So the idea of being separated for God's purposes is seen. It's seen throughout the Old Testament and its ultimate fulfillment was in Jesus Christ. And here's, here's where it started with the birth of Jesus. It says in Luke chapter 1, all the Gospels give different accounts of the birth of Jesus. I'm reading from Luke's this morning, chapter 1, verse 30 to 35. I'm not reading the entire text because it's a little long, so I'm going to be uh, summarizing it a little bit. But it says this, now in the sixth month, that's speaking of the pregnancy of, um, of um, Zechariah and his wife in the birth of John the Baptist. Now in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, having carrying John the Baptist, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin whose name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And then after this greeting, there's a few more words that the angel Gabriel explains to Mary that she's going to have a baby. She's going to conceive. She's going to give birth. And of course, Mary replies saying, how can this be since I do not know a man? Gabriel answered, here's the key text. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that child is, who is to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the set apart of Jesus is not new to the Bible. This isn't the only person that was set apart. In fact, God set all kinds of things apart, which I think is ironic for us because we tend to think of holy, you know, as behaviors, human behaviors are holy. <clears throat> But there were holy cities, holy mountains, holy places, most holy places. Does that mean they were more holy than the holy places? 
were the holy mountains holy because they didn't go out on Saturday night and get drunk? You know, they were living a good life. I'm trying to be a good mountain here. No. God even made dirt holy. <laughs> huh? You Bible readers, come on. In Exodus, God said to Moses, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Huh? So if you, if you think you're holy because of your behavior, get over yourself. I mean, you've got to come to terms with holiness is something God does. All through the Old Testament, he set people apart. He set places apart, whole cities, mountains, where he touched them by his sovereign purpose and used them for his glory. Jesus' response, though, see, we're not, we're not inanimate objects. We are unique. We respond to this. Jesus' response to God was enthusiastic obedience. Psalm 40, verse 8, is sort of a prophetic point towards the person of Christ. It applies to us as well, but here's what the psalmist says, Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, there's two things that, that, that's speaking to us in this text. Number one, speaking of Jesus himself, looking forward to this, this enthusiastic obedience. Number one, Jesus was all in, okay? He was all in. We see this in everything we, he did today. Today, we're going to talk about three different areas where Jesus was set apart. He was all in. The second, this foreshadows something about the coming of the Holy Spirit who would do away with all the external structures that, de that define holiness to us, maybe, or at least to the, to the Jews of that time, the mountains, the cities, the holy places, the most holy places, all those external structures that required a certain amount of respect and sacred behavior, all of that was done away, and he says, your law is in my heart. The wonderful thing about that is we no longer have to think about somehow externally performing to get to a place of acceptance with God. He places his own presence and law in our hearts and we act out of that which lives within us. It's amazing forward look in the Psalms to what was coming in Jesus Christ. Probably a lot of you have seen the recent movie about the Jesus movement. My wife and I went, both of us came to Christ during those days and I, you know, I sat through that movie just wiping tears on my face because it was such a nostalgic experience. You young people probably don't completely get that for people my age. It was an amazing walk through memory lane of what God did back in the 60s and the 70s. It was an amazing thing. I was this troubled teenager just getting out of college during that time. <clears throat> and when, I, when Jesus touched my life at Jesus 73 in Pennsylvania, the first big Jesus gathering on the eastern coast, I was transformed. My life was changed. All the stuff that I was in, all the drugs and other things that I was pursuing left me completely empty. I went all in with Jesus. I was just overwhelmed with his goodness and his transforming grace in my life. And doing God's will became my absolute delight. Many of you, if you found Jesus Christ, this has been your experience. When he does something in our lives and we go all in, we're so grateful for what he did for us. 
But let's talk about some things that were unique to the person of Jesus. They reply to us, but this is some of the unique things we see in Scripture. Jesus was separated. He's, God separated Jesus from three different things that, that I saw. I'm sure there's others, but they are pride, pettiness, and power. So first we'll talk about pride. Pride, pettiness, and power. If you're taking notes on your little app there, you'll, I hope that I touch on these different things. But first of all, when Jesus was tested, he went into the wilderness right after this thing that happened where he came up out of the water being baptized by John. The Holy Spirit comes on him and, and uh, speaks these words of God's pleasure over Jesus. Immediately, Mark's gospel says he was driven. Luke's gospel is a little bit nicer about it. He says he was led, but he... Anyway, he, was, he went into the wilderness, and he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by Satan during that time. Now, the Bible, in the, in the accounts that are in three of the Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, doesn't really say specifically that Jesus was alone, but it is assumed, it's inferred. Mark says that he was with the wild animals. So doesn't say he was with anybody else, just wild animals. <laughs> but it's inferred that he was kind of alone. He seemed like he was alone. Let's read this text. The separation was really powerful. It was a very personal time of separation and testing. The word temptation in the Greek really means to be tested. So the separation was very powerful in Jesus' life. It proved some, some things about Jesus. It proved his resolve to stand on his own. It proved his absolute dependency on God. And it proved, his it proved his absolute commitment to God's purposes. So reading from Matthew's account in, in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, ans he answered, it's important to remember this because he answers the same way all three through all three tests. It is written, he quotes the Bible, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's test number one. Turn stones into bread. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. So the devil's quoting scripture to him. He will command his angel concerning you, his angels, concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the second test was throw yourself down, take advantage of the angel army to come and help you. Third, the angel took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Three tests. I, I call them, these three things, self-indulgence. I want what I want, and I want it now. Huh? You're hungry? Nobody's looking. Just change some stones into bread and eat it. Nobody even has to know about it. Number two, throw yourself off this, off this pinnacle of the temple and the angels will come and rescue. Self-importance. I am so important that all these angels, I'm just going to see how important I am. You know, I'm going to jump off here and see who comes to rescue me. Sort of a narcissistic 
using of God to see what you could get. And finally, self-exaltation. Whatever it takes, I want it all. The devil promises, you just worship me and I'll give you everything. Self-indulgence, self-importance, self-exaltation. Jesus was tested about pride. Was, you know, are you going to allow pride in your identity and in your ability? Are you going to allow that to, to govern you and to lead you? Or are you going to follow the purposes of God? I like what Tim Keller says about what it means to be centered in God's purposes for our lives and committed to God's glory. He says this, People like that do not think less of ourselves. We just think of ourselves less. We do not think less of ourselves. We just think about ourselves less. Jesus also separated himself from pettiness. This is an amazing thing. I, you know, I love reading the Bible. I've been reading it for good grief. 40 or 50 years. <laughs> 50 years. This was amazing insight about pettiness. Jesus continually deals with pettiness in people. And it wasn't just the Pharisees. It was his own inner circle. You know, John the Baptist's disciples come to him and says, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? The Pharisees come to him and says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Another time after Jesus healed, was or about to heal someone, they said, is it lawful to pluck grain? Because the disciples had been plucking grain in the fields and eating, and that's a form of work, even though they were just plucking a little bit. They're picking at them. Is it lawful to pluck grain and heal on the Sabbath? Another one, Pharisees said, why do your disciples eat without washing their hands? So one time in Matthew 16, Jesus began to unfold. This is the first time that Jesus begins to unfold to his disciples that he's going to actually go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to die. Peter, Peter, who had his own agenda for Jesus, he had a plan for Jesus. The disciples had a plan for Jesus, and it didn't include death by crucifixion. Peter goes, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you which is a euphemism for saying, this isn't fitting into my plan for your life, Jesus. One time in that, in that context, you know, Peter made this great revelation of who Jesus was, and he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for no one revealed this to you but God himself. And then two, two verses later when he says that, he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Mrs. Zebedee, oh, the disciples on another occasion, they came to Jesus. They'd been arguing among themselves in the back, and Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? And Jesus, they say to him, who, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That was an ongoing conversation. This is a pretty cool gig we got going on here, Jesus. You know, a lot of people are coming to you, a lot of thousands of people. Who's going to be like, and Mrs. Zebedee, the, the wife of Mr. Zebedee, who was the father, fisherman father of James and John, Mrs. Mrs. Zebedee comes to Jesus one day and he says, um, can I talk to you for a minute? And he takes Jesus aside and he says, look, could you promise me that my two boys, James and John, could sit like on your right hand, on your left when you come into your kingdom? 
The Last Supper, the Last Supper of all places. They're sitting there, Jesus is one of the greatest monologues, the greatest heartfelt, it wasn't a sermon, it was a sharing time, one of the greatest long and long sharing times of Jesus with the disciples, John half of John 13, all of John 14, and John 15, Jesus is sharing with the disciples what's coming imminently. And part of his demonstration to them was to show his humility. And Peter, so he takes out a basin of water, wants to wash her feet, and Peter's like, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. That's never going to happen. Peter and Thomas, two other disciples, they're like, uh, where are you going again? And we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? That's the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is trying to unfold this very serious thing about to happen, and they're like, where, where are you, you know? Philip, third, fourth disciple, he's like, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. In other words, just explain what's going on. And here's where you can start seeing some exasperation in Jesus. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In Luke 11, Jesus gets downright, totally exasperated with petty people. The Pharisees come to him and criticize about these different details, small things, and Jesus, here's what Jesus says. He just goes off on them. He said, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and herb and neglect justice and the love of God. And then he goes on to say, you know, you should do those small things, but you really ought to pay attention to the big ones. You Pharisees, you love the best seats in the synagogues and markets. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers that was standing by heard this. They said, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. When I read that, I was sort of remembered, you know, in Jerry Seinfeld, if you ever watched the TV show Jerry Seinfeld, it's like when George's dad, Frank Kazanza, has this little argument with Elaine. He said, what are you saying? Do you want a piece of me? That's what Jesus, he says, Whoa, when they said, Jesus, you insult us also. Woe to you, lawyers, you said, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I remember this professor in a university in eastern Pennsylvania once complained about teaching college students for years and years and years. He said, you try to convey to your students the grand themes of scripture, sovereignty and wisdom and of an omnipotent God and the existential challenges of our time and you're pouring your, out your soul and some kid in the back raises his hand and says, do we have to know this for the final? He said, after seven years of that, you need a sabbatical. <laughs> well, the thing is, we're all susceptible to pettiness. We all kind of get narrowed down, and we lose sight of the big picture, and we tend to lean into our own self-interests. But thank God Jesus stayed focused on his mission and didn't let anything deter him or distract him from where he needed to go when he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
The Apostle Paul understood this in his introduction to the, to the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman Christians, he says these words. He says in the very first introduction of the book of Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations. So all of us can be challenged about uh, not allowing the, the little things of life to distract us from the big and grand purposes of God in our lives. Also, Jesus separated, separated himself finally from power. So we talked about he separated himself from prideful things. He separated himself from petty things. And now he's separating himself from, from a search or a grasping of power. Paul writes this in the book of Philippians. He says, Though he, meaning Jesus, was born, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said a lot of things about his understanding of power, he said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a child. He said, the first, meaning those who are in the, at the head, those who are in the best seats of the house, those who have the most, the first will be last, and the last first. When the disciples argued with him about who's going to be greatest, he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. And that's why at the Last Supper, the last time he was going to be with them before he went to the cross, he got down on his knees and took a cloth in his hands and a basin in front of him and washed the disciples' feet. Jesus ultimately laid his life down at Calvary. And in this great monologue at the Last Supper, he's sharing with his disciples. And one of the, to me, one of the most profound things he said in that three-chapter monologue sharing with his disciples is found in John 14. He says this, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, when I was a young man and read that verse, that verse inspired me. I thought, wow, if I just obey Jesus and follow Jesus and do his purposes, fulfill his purposes, I, I might do greater works than Jesus did. You know, we're looking at these miracles and these crowds and this fame. Of course, a young man's not thinking about the cross, <laughs> thinking about all the glory stuff. And I thought, I might be able to do greater works than Jesus. That's good stuff for, the, for a young man. Proverbs says, the glory of the young man is his strength. Now, I understand that when I was young. And then it says, and the glory of the old man is a, is a gray head. In my case, it's a bald head. Looking back on my life now from that perspective of a young man, that's a good thing. You know, we have this hope that I could actually do great works for God. We, we did that in our years of mission on the field. We preached probably in the years that we were on the field, we probably preached a half a million people maybe more. 
and we started a church planning movement in Sri Lanka that today serves thousands of people with almost 100 churches. Now, though, as an older man, I read this verse differently. Now I see things a little bit more from the perspective of Jesus. He says, the works that I do shall you do, and greater works shall you do because I go to the, my Father. I, now I see this happening through people that have come up under me. My children, this is happening in my children, and it's a delight for a father to see your kids doing well. My kids are all grown. Beth and I spent you know, our lives committed to our kids. They're grown, they're married, they're happy in their marriages, they're successful in their businesses. They're doing way better than I, we are. And we're not jealous or envious. We're like proud of them. I pray they'll make a bigger impact than I ever did. I see this happening at Globe International, the mission organization that I lead. Been leading Globe for 29 years this year, and I'm starting now to turn over leadership to a younger generation. I, we have younger leaders that are coming in. I'm still involved, but in the coming years, they're gonna take Globe to a whole nother level. I, I pray you know, they will see Globe double, triple in the next, next decades under their leadership. We all have to come to that, especially as we get older. We have to come to this idea that the things that we value as humans, we cannot keep. Not in this life. We can't keep them. It's amazing that Jesus saw this. He was only 33 years old, and he was giving it away. It's an amazing thing. It's not easy to do. But something, for it to happen, something in us must die. We must be... We must relinquish. We must let things go. This is what Jesus did. It's amazing how he just let it go. I remember this pastor acquaintance and friend that we have known from Hawaii. He actually served in Southern California for many years. Well, I say in the Bay Area, Northern California, for many years with his family, large church. Beth and I, last September, we're in Hawaii for two weeks, and one, one week in Kauai, and then another week in Honolulu. And while we were there, we always we stay in the home in Honolulu with this a dear pastor friend that's been a mentor in our lives for 40 years, Pastor Sam Webb and his wife, Nancy. So we went to their home, and one day they took us for lunch to the condo of this retired pastor who spends a lot of their time in the islands. Pastor C, I'll call him. He had led a large church in the Bay Area. And, and actually, during his years, he had preached as like an evangelist to large events all over the Pacific Rim, including Japan and Philippines. And when we were there at his, their house after lunch, Pastor C was showing me some of the pictures. He's you know, older now. He's in his mid-80s. His wife is in the early stages of some dementia. He is way more frail than he was. And he's showing me these these pictures from these albums of this, some of the large events he took. He was he had done and led. And as he's showing these pictures to me, he says, I can still do that. He said, I'll go over there again sometime and I'll preach like that again. And of course, I'm standing beside him looking at the pictures and I'm smiling respectfully, but in my mind, I'm thinking, nah, <laughs> ain't gonna happen. The fact is, Pastor C has raised up a godly family, a great church. He's turned it over. He's done it well. You know, 
but it's not outside of us as we get older to just still hang on to the nostalgia and think, I could do one more thing. And maybe, maybe we could, you know, maybe he can. It's not easy to face the realities of our mortality, but it's work we have to do. And Jesus did it even as a 33-year-old young man. German religious leader and social reformer known popularly as Count Zinzendorf, his name was Nicholas. He lived in the 1700s in Germany. This is what he said. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Profound thing. Jesus separated himself from a grab for power he separated himself from the petty things that drag us down and distract us. He separated himself from a life of prideful self-centeredness. He was willing to humble himself and even be forgotten. God knew, of course, he would not be. He raised him from the dead. Jesus knew that would happen too, but there was this willingness to risk everything for the greater good. God highly exalted him. Everything we do in this life for the glory of God will endure, not just because of us, but because others will carry it on. It's worth our time to invest in other people. The most powerful thing we could ever do is give stuff away. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the example that we have seen in the life of Christ through these past number of weeks, his willingness to go off on his own and isolate, his willingness to surrender his will to your will, Lord. The way he served people around him and the example he gave, and then today as we studied separation, how we see how you set him apart and he was faithful to that separation. Lord, help us to glean from these things and allow our lives to be a reflection of those things and all that we do i pray bless our church lord we ask you to come and continue to move through this church let us be a light to our community let us be an example to our community lord in witness in love and service and these same things that we see in the life of jesus let us be a shining example of those things i pray i pray for each one here today and anyone who's here lord that might be on those fringes and kicking the tires about their faith. I pray that you'd help them and come and stand near to them, Lord, and nudge them about with your gracious kindness. Help them go all in for Jesus, Lord. Go all in for Jesus. That's you today. I just want to encourage you to just go all in for Jesus right now. You don't have to do anything but just say yes in your heart. Say, yes, Jesus, come on in. I'll, I'll just give you everything. I pray for those, Lord, you just would reassure them when they do that. Take that little step of your forgiveness for the things we're aware of that we've done, the need to be forgiven, and the welcome, Lord, that you give us so freely, undeservedly. You can't earn it. You just hand it to us. Welcome into your presence today. I pray you do that for every person who might be here that are just on the edges and asking questions, Lord. Bless them today, I pray. All of us, Lord, I pray for your enriching presence in our lives in greater ways to help us to walk with you, even in our frailty, even in our failures, 
even when we ourselves don't measure up, Lord, you do, and we look to your example to carry us on. In Jesus' name, we thank you.